Vienna. Strange and unusual stories from history, literature, myths, and legends. The Golden Goblet Yinshidan, who rose to be president of the Board of Civil Office, was a native of Li Chung, who grew up in circumstances of great poverty, and had shown himself to be a young man of courage and resourcefulness. In his hometown, there was a large estate that had once belonged to a long-established family, a rambling property consisting of a series of pavilions and other buildings that extended over several acres. Strange apparitions had often been witnessed on the estate, with the result that it had been abandoned and allowed to go to ruin. No one was willing to live there. With time, the place grew so overgrown and desolate that no one would so much as enter it, even in broad daylight. One day, Yin was drinking with some young friends of his when one of them had a bright idea. If one of us dares to spend a night in that haunted place, he proposed jokingly, let's all buy him a dinner. Yin leapt up at once. Why, what could be easier? And so saying, he took his sleeping mat with him and went to the place, the others accompanying him as far as the entrance. We will wait here, outside, they said, smiling nervously. If you see anything out of the ordinary, be sure to raise the alarm. Yin laughed. If I find any ghosts or foxes, I'll catch one to show you. And in he went. The paths were overgrown with long grass and tangled weeds. It was the first quarter of the month and the crescent moon gave off just enough light for him to make out the gateways and doors. He groped his way forward until he found himself standing before the building that stood at the rear of the main compound. He climbed onto the terrace and thought it seemed a delightful place to take a little nap. The slender arc of the moon shining in the western sky seemed to hold the hills in its mouth. He sat there a long while without observing anything unusual, and began to smile to himself at the foolish rumors about the place being haunted. Spreading his mat and choosing a stone for a pillow, he lay there gazing up at the constellation of the cowherd and the spinning maid in the night sky. By the end of the first watch, he was just beginning to doze off, when he heard the patter of footsteps from below, and a servant girl appeared carrying a lotus-shaped lantern. The sight of Yin seemed to startle her, and she made as if to flee, calling out the someone behind her. There's a strange-looking man here. Who is it? replied a voice. I don't know. Presently, an old gentleman appeared, and approaching Yin, scrutinized him. Why, this is future President Yin. He is fast asleep. We can carry on as planned. He is a broad-minded fellow and will not take offense. 
The old man led the maid on into the building, where they threw open all the doors. After a while, a great many guests started arriving, and the upper rooms were as brightly lit as if it had been broad daylight. Yin tossed and turned on the terrace where he lay. Then he sneezed. The old man, hearing that he was awake, came out and knelt down by his side. My daughter, sir, is being given in marriage tonight. I had no idea that your excellency would be here and crave your indulgence. Yin rose to his feet and made the old man do likewise. I was not aware that a wedding was taking place tonight. I regret I have brought no gift with me. Your very presence is gift enough, replied the old man graciously, and will help to ward off noxious influences. Would you be so kind as to honor us further with your company now? Yin assented. Entering the building, he looked around him at the splendid feast that had been prepared. A woman of about forty, whom the old gentleman introduced as his wife, came out to welcome him, and Yin made her a bow. Then the sound of festive pipes was heard, and someone came rushing in, crying, He has arrived! The old man hurried out to receive his future son-in-law, and Yin remained standing where he was, in expectation. After a little while, a bevy of servants bearing gauze lanterns ushered in the groom, a handsome young man of seventeen or eighteen, of a most distinguished appearance and prepossessing bearing. The old gentleman bade him pay his respects to the guests of honor, and the young man turned to Yin, whom he took to be some sort of master of ceremonies, and bowed to him in the appropriate fashion. Then the old man and the groom exchanged formal courtesies, and when they were completed, they took their seats. Presently a throng of finely attired serving maids came forward, with choice wines and steaming dishes of meat. Jade bowls and golden goblets glistened on the tables. When the wine had been round several times, the old gentleman dispatched one of his maids to summon the bride. The maid departed on her errand, but when she had been gone a long while and still there was no sign of his daughter, the old man himself eventually rose from his seat and lifting a curtain concealing a doorway, went into the inner apartments to hurry her along. At last, several maids and serving women ushered in the bride to the sound of tinkling jade pendants and the scent of musk and orchid. Obedient to her father's instructions, she curtsied to the senior guests and then took her seat by her mother's side. Yin could see from a glance that beneath the kingfisher ornaments she was a young woman of extraordinary beauty. They were drinking from large goblets of solid gold, each of which held well over a pint, and Yin thought to himself that one of these would be an ideal proof of his adventure that night. So he hid one in his sleeve to show his friends on his return, then slumped across the table, pretending to have been overpowered by the wine. His Excellency is drunk, they remarked. A little later, Yin heard the groom take his leave, and as the pipes started up again, all the guests began trooping downstairs. The old gentleman came to gather up his golden goblets and noticed that one of them was missing. He searched for it to no avail. Someone suggested their sleeping guest as a culprit, 
but the old gentleman promptly bid him be silent for fear that Yin might hear. After a while, when all was still within and without, Yin rose from the table. The lamps had all been extinguished and it was dark, but the aroma of the food and the fumes of the wine still lingered in the hall. As he made his way slowly out of the building and felt inside his sleeve for the golden goblet, which was still safely hidden, the first light of dawn glimmered in the eastern sky. He reached the entrance of the estate to find his friends still waiting outside. They had stayed there all night in case he should try to trick them by coming out and going back in again early in the morning. He took the golden goblet from his sleeve and showed it to them. In utter amazement, they asked him how he had come upon it, whereupon he told them the whole story. They knew how poor he was, and that he was most unlikely to have owned such a valuable object himself, and so were obliged to believe him. Some years later, Yin passed his final examination and obtained the degree of doctor, after which he was appointed to a post in Feichou. A wealthy gentleman of the district by the name of Zhu gave a banquet in his honor and ordered his large golden goblets to be brought out for the occasion. They were a long time coming, and as the company waited, a young servant came up and whispered something to the master of the household, who instantly flew into a rage. Presently, the goblets were brought in, and Zhu urged his guests to drink. To his astonishment, Yin at once recognized the shape and pattern of the goblets as being identical with the one he kept from a fox wedding. He asked his host where they had been made. I had eight of them, was his reply. An ancestor of mine was a high-ranking mandarin in Peking, and had them made by a master goldsmith of the time. They had been in my family for generations, but it is a long while since I last had them taken out of storage. When I knew we would have the honor of your company today, I told my man to open the box, and it turns out that there are only seven left. I would have suspected one of my household of stealing it, but apparently there was ten years dust on the seals and the box was untampered with. It baffles me how this could have happened. The thing must have grown wings and flown away of its own accord, quipped Yin with a laugh. But seeing that you have lost an heirloom, I feel I must help you replace it. I myself have a goblet, sir, very similar to this set of yours. Allow me to make you a present of it. When the meal was over, he returned to his official residence and taking out his own goblet, sent it round straightway to Ju's house. When he inspected it, Ju was absolutely amazed. He went to thank Yin in person, and when he asked him where he had acquired the goblet, Yin told him the whole story, which all goes to show that although foxes may be capable of getting a hold of objects from a very long way away, they do not hold on to them forever. A Most Exemplary Monk A man named Zhang died suddenly and was escorted at once by devil attendants into the presence of Yama, king of the underworld. 
Yama checked his registers and turned angrily to the attendants, informing them that they had brought the wrong man and were to take him back immediately. As they left, John secretly entreated his devil guards to let him have a quick look at hell, and they led him all the way through the nine dark places, past the mountain of knives and the forest of swords, pointing out the various sites one by one. By and by they reached a place where a Buddhist monk was hanging upside down in the air, suspended by a rope through a hole in his leg. He was crying out in excruciating pain. As Jong approached, he saw to his great horror and distress that the man was his own brother. He asked his guards the reason for this appalling punishment, and they informed him that the monk had been condemned to this torment for having collected alms on behalf of his order, which he had then squandered on gambling and debauchery. Or, they added, will his punishment cease until he repents his misdeeds. When Zhang regained consciousness, fearing that his brother must already be dead, he hurried off to the Xingfu Monastery, where he had been in residence. As he went in at the door, he heard a loud shrieking and, on proceeding to his brother's cell, found him upside down, just as he had seen him in hell with his legs tied up above him to the wall, and an abscess oozing blood and pus between his thighs. Appalled, he asked him for an explanation, and his brother told him that he was in terrible pain, and that this was the only position in which the pain was at all bearable. Zhang now described what he had seen in hell, and the monk was so terrified that he at once gave up drinking liquor and eating meat, and devoted himself humbly to the recitation of the sutras and mantras of his religion. In a fortnight he was well again, and became known ever afterwards as a most exemplary monk. Magical Arts A certain Mr. Yu was a spirited young fellow, fond of boxing and trials of strength. He was able to take two kettles and swing them round about with the speed of the wind. Now, during the reign of Chung Cheng, when up for the final examination at the capital, his servant became seriously ill. Much troubled at this, he applied to a necromancer in the marketplace who was skillful at determining the various leases of life allotted to men. Before he had uttered a word, the necromancer asked him, saying, Is it not about your servant, sir, that you would consult me? Mr. Hugh was startled at this and replied that it was. The sick man continued the necromancer, will come to no harm. You, sir, are the one in danger. Mr. Yu then begged him to cast his nativity, which he proceeded to do, finally saying to Mr. Yu, You have but three days to live. Dreadfully frightened, he remained some time in a state of stupefaction, 
when the necromancer quietly observed that he possessed the power of averting this calamity by magic and would exert it for the sum of ten ounces of silver. But Mr. Yu reflected that life and death are already fixed and he didn't see how magic could save him. So he refused and was just going away whereupon the necromancer said, You grudge this trifling outlay? I hope you will not repent it. Mr. Yu's friends also urged him to pay the money, advising him rather to empty his purse than not secure the necromancer's compassion. Mr. Yu, however, would not hear of it, and the three days slipped quickly away. Then he sat down calmly in his inn to see what was going to happen. Nothing did happen all day, and at night he shut his door and trimmed the lamp. Then, with a sword at his side, he awaited the approach of death. By and by, the Klepsydra showed that two hours had already gone without bringing him any nearer to disillusion, and he was thinking about lying down when he heard a scratching at the window and then saw a tiny little man creep through, carrying a spear on his shoulder, who, on reaching the ground, shot up to the ordinary height. Mr. Yu seized his sword and at once struck at it, but only succeeded in cutting the air. His visitor instantly shrunk down small again and made an attempt to escape through the crevice of the window. But Yu redoubled his blows and at last brought him to the ground. Lighting the lamp, he found only a paper man cut right through the middle. This made him afraid to sleep, and he sat up watching until, in a little time, he saw a horrid hobgoblin creep through the same place. No sooner did it touch the ground than he assailed it lustily with his sword, at length cutting it in half. Seeing, however, that both halves kept on wriggling about and fearing that it might get up again, he went on hacking at it. Every blow told, giving forth a hard sound, and when he came to examine his work, he found a clay image all knocked to pieces. Upon this, he moved his seat near to the window and kept his eye fixed on the crack. After some time, he heard a noise like a bull bellowing outside the window, and something pushed against the window frame with such force as to make the whole house tremble and seem about to fall. Mr. Yu, fearing he should be buried under the ruins, thought he could not do better than fight outside, so he accordingly burst open the door with a crash and rushed out. There he found a huge devil, as tall as the house, and he saw by the dim light of the moon that its face was as black as coal. Its eyes shot forth yellow fire. It had nothing either upon its shoulders or feet, but held a bow in its hand and had some arrows at its waist. Mr. Yu was terrified, 
and the devil discharged an arrow at him which he struck to the ground with his sword. On Mr. Yu preparing to strike, the devil let off another arrow, which the former avoided by jumping aside, the arrow quivering in the wall beyond with a smart crack. The devil here got very angry, and drawing his sword flourished it like a whirlwind, aiming a tremendous blow at Mr. Yu. Mr. Yu ducked, and the whole force of the blow fell upon the stone wall of the house, cutting it right in two. Mr. Yu then ran out from between the devil's legs and began hacking at its back. Whack! Whack! The devil now became furious and roared like thunder, turning round to get another blow at his assailant. But Mr. Yu again ran between his legs, the devil's sword merely cutting off a piece of his coat. Once more he hacked away. Whack! Whack! And at length the devil came tumbling down flat. Mr. Yu cut at him right and left, each blow resounding like the watchman's wooden gong. And then, bringing a light, he found it was a wooden image about as tall as a man. The bow and arrows were still there, the latter attached to its waist. Its carved and painted features were most hideous to behold, and wherever Mr. Yu had struck it with his sword, there was blood. Mr. Yu sat with the light in his hand till morning, when he awaked to the fact that all these devils had been sent by the necromancer in order to kill him and so evidence his own magical power. The next day, after having told the story far and wide, he went with some others to the place where the necromancer had his stall. But the latter, seeing them coming, vanished in the twinkling of an eye. Someone observed that the blood of a dog would reveal a person who had made himself invisible, and Mr. Yu immediately procured some and went back with it. The necromancer disappeared as before, but on the spot where he had been standing, they quickly threw down the dog's blood. Thereupon, they saw his head and face all smeared over with the blood, his eyes glaring like a devil's and at once seizing him, they handed him over to the authorities, by whom he was put to death. Living Dead A certain old man of Yanshin came to live at Tai Village, a few miles from my hometown. Here he and his son opened a roadside tavern, where travelers could put up for the night. It became a regular halt for the many carters and itinerant merchants who plied their trade on that route. One evening, as dusk fell, four strangers arrived at the inn and asked for lodging, only to be told by the landlord that every bed was taken. They protested that it was too late for them to journey on, and pleaded with him to take them in. Finally, after much pondering and hesitation, he said that he could perhaps offer them a place for the night, but that he feared it would not meet with their liking. They replied that any lodging 
Even a mat in an outhouse would suit them well. They were in no position to be choosy. It so happened that the old man's daughter-in-law had only recently died, and her body was lying in one of the rooms of the inn. His son had gone away to buy the wood for the coffin, and had not yet returned. The landlord led the travelers to this room, which was set slightly apart from the main compound, on the other side of the thoroughfare. It had been chosen as a lying-in room for its relative seclusion. When they entered, they saw a lamp burning on a small table, beyond which curtains were draped across the room. Through the curtains, they caught a glimpse of the corpse itself, stretched out on a trestle bed and covered with a paper shroud. In an alcove to one side of the room, the men saw a row of four beds, and exhausted from their day's journey, they threw themselves down and were soon snoring loudly, with the exception of one. And even he was finally beginning to doze off when he heard a creaking sound coming from the trestle bed on which the dead body was laid out. Opening his eyes, he was able by the light of the lamp to distinguish the figure of the girl as she lifted off her paper shroud, got down from the bed, and started to move towards the alcove where he and the other three were sleeping. Her face gave off a golden glow, and she had a turban of raw silk wrapped around her forehead. When she reached the beds, she blew on each of the three sleeping men in turn, and the fourth man, terrified that she would come to him next, stealthily drew the bedclothes up over his face and lay there holding his breath and listening. He heard her breathe on him, just as she had done on the others, and then he heard the sound of her footsteps as she walked back from the alcove and the rustling of the paper shroud as she climbed back onto her trestle bed. Poking out his head, he saw her lying there, a rigid corpse once more. He did not dare to make a sound, but stretched out a foot and furtively kicked his companions, not one of whom made the slightest movement in response. His only hope of survival, he now decided, lay in getting dressed and making a dash for it. He rose up in his bed and was about to put on his clothes when he heard the creaking sound again and dived back in terror under the covers. Once more, the girl walked slowly over to the alcove and once more she breathed on him through the covers, this time several times before returning to her bed. He heard the trestles creak and knew that she must be lying down again. This time, he reached slowly for his trousers, hardly stirring from his bed, and slipped quickly into them and ran barefoot towards the door. The next instant, the corpse rose from its bed and set off in hot pursuit after him. He had already unbolted the door and was gone, but she chased him through the village 
All the while he ran ahead of her, screaming. Not a single villager seemed to hear, and he did not dare to stop and rouse the landlord by knocking at the end door, for fear that the slightest delay might result in his capture by the fiend. Instead, he kept running as fast as his legs could carry him, out of the village and in the direction of a country town. As he came to the eastern outskirts of the town, he caught sight of a Buddhist temple and heard the talk-talk of the wooden fish that the monks were beating during their prayers. He ran up and knocked urgently at the temple gate, but the monks were too frightened to let in an unknown stranger in the middle of the night and turned him away. When he looked behind him, he saw the living corpse bearing down upon him. He had not a second to lose. Before the temple stood a poplar tree, some four or five feet in circumference. He darted behind it, dodging this way and that, always keeping the trunk between himself and the corpse, who now seemed to be growing increasingly fierce. They were both becoming more and more exhausted, when all of a sudden, the corpse stood stock still. On his side of the tree trunk, the man was perspiring heavily from his exertions and quite out of breath. Suddenly he too froze, and the corpse lunged violently forward, reaching out both arms in a desperate and unsuccessful attempt to clutch at him around the tree. In utter terror, the man collapsed on the ground. The corpse remained there fixed in place, rigidly embracing the tree. The monks had been following all of this from the safety of the temple precincts, and when the sound of the struggle died away, they came creeping out to find the man lying on the ground. They shone a lamp on him, and though at first he seemed dead, when they felt his heart, they detected the faintest trace of a pulse. They carried him inside, and late that night, when he finally regained consciousness, they gave him some broth to drink, and he told them the whole story. When the matin bell rang, they went out into the misty light to examine the tree and found the girl's corpse still tightly clamped to it. In great consternation, they reported the strange event to the county magistrate, who came in person to investigate and conduct an inquest. He ordered his men to pull the girl's hands away from the tree, but this proved almost impossible. And on closer inspection, they could see that her fingers, which were curled like hooks, had penetrated into the trunk of the tree, burying her nails deep in the wood. It took the concerted efforts of several men to prize her away. The finger holes were long and narrow, as if they had been bored by a carpenter's awl. A messenger was sent to inform the old landlord, whose inn was in a great state of commotion, both at the disappearance of the corpse and at the discovery of the three travelers dead in their beds. The old man followed the messengers back and gave instructions for the dead body of his daughter-in-law to be transported back to the inn on a stretcher. The surviving traveler tearfully confided to the magistrate the difficulty of his situation. The four of us left home together when I returned to my village on my own, 
No one is going to believe my story. The magistrate provided him with a written certificate of the facts and an allowance for his journey home. sound and music in this episode is by Bob Familiar, with the exception of the music for A Most Exemplary Monk, which is by Mantray, a musical duo out of Philadelphia, PA, also known as Calvin Weston and Paul Bilbrow. All stories in this episode are from the John Mintford translation of Pusan Ling's Strange Tales from a Chinese Studio, and are read by Jim Bilbrow, with the notable exception of Magical Arts, which is from the earlier and phonetically suspect Herbert Giles translation, and is read by Mike Haran. Mike is a actor, writer, carpenter, boating enthusiast, and general friend to all mankind, and is based in Charlottesville, Virginia. The part of the Fox Spirit Servant Girl in Golden Goblet was played by Olivia Bilbro. Olivia is an up-and-coming voice actress out of Salem, Massachusetts. This has been Ambient Arcana. Ambient Arcana.